Hey, this is Dave Broadbeck. I'm your instructor. Unless you're not just listening to this for fun because you're some kind of person who listens to university lectures for fun. I was going to insult you. I decided against it. So person who's listening to this for fun, I'm not going to insult you. Anyway, uh, yeah, uh, I'm Dave Broadbeck uh, here at Algoma University, and you're about to listen to a lecture from uh, the fall 2023 term of Psychology 3106, Animal Behavior. It's what the cool kids study in school. Sorry, I didn't mean to yell there. Hope you enjoy it. And if you don't, well, I still get paid, so I don't really care. talk about is territory. We'll just talk about both territory and navigation because I think we can do both. Um, if we don't, that's fine. But you can even see I've got written here. Part one, territory. So I want to talk about territory first, then we'll switch over to navigation. Uh, we may get navigation done today, we may not. It doesn't matter. Um, right, let's talk about territory. So how do we define territoriality? How do we define, what, how do we, what do we know when an animal's territorial? Hmm. We're going to look at this behaviorally, obviously. Um, the best example I've seen is written by Nick Davies, and he says that animals are more spaced than we would expect by chance, and I realize that's a long time ago, but Nick's kind of a big deal. And that's um, from a book called Behavioral Ecology, which is probably the book that invented the term behavioral ecology. <laughs> so it's kind of a big deal, perhaps in Davies. Um, this is a nice, nice, very simple Definition, I mean, what I like about it also is that it shows you how you can measure it. I like definitions that tell me how I can measure things. Um, so what we have here are a couple of examples. This is, these are actually taken from Krebs and Davies 78, which I guarantee you there's other faculty members that have that book on their shelves too. Most of them, they'd all be in biology, but I bet there's at least two others, probably three. I bet at least four of them have that book. I think Jen has I'm sure Jen has it. <laughs> I guarantee you Jen has it. I bet Bill had Bill Dew has it, and I bet Kristen Madler has it. No. So what we have here is you could work out ex uh, the expected distribution. Nicely skewed here of these two distributions. Uh, for these, these are frogs, and these are some kind of slugs or something. Uh, and see, so work work out we've got random distribution. And then you take a look at what you actually see, and the peak is further over. That tells you that they're more, they're, these are two territorial species. Okay? That's, that's just a way to look at that. You just say, what, does it overlap with this curve? If it doesn't, it's a territorial species. 
Okay. Oh, sorry. If, yeah. If it, if it doesn't overlap with this, with the expected, I was pointing the wrong curve. If it doesn't overlap with the expected. It's a territorial species. Yes. Sorry. Okay. And that's like a random curve. There are two. This is so a, this is a random. Some. The expected is a Poisson distribution skewed to the right. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, <laughs> that helps. And the other one's against the distribution. But it looks like. Yeah. Okay, good stuff. So that's nice, and it's 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 in a definition. I like a definition. I like an operational definition. My favorite kind of definition. Because we can argue about it, but at least it says in black and white what it means. So how are we gonna? When should it be territorial? Well, it should do it when it, we're gonna look at this with optimality. Always use optimality models, best way to go. So functionally, animals should only defend a territory when the costs are less than the benefits. Right. Of course, duh. And this is very generally um, costs and benefits is on this axis, and we have on the x-axis here, we have the size of the territory. And at some point, you can imagine that a really big territory is hard to defend, so the, the, the benefits start to drop off because the costs, the benefits get to a point where you can't get anything else out of them because you're only one bird. You can't eat any more food than all you can fit in your stomach. You, know, you can't mate with more mates than, I got a little weird, sorry. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, and the same thing you have here, right? Again, when it's a very small territory, there's no cost, there's no benefit either. It's great when there's no cost, but if you're not getting anything out of it, you don't behave that way either. The best would be right here in the middle, and you can see these two curves differ. The benefit curve will asymptote. The cost curve will go up linearly. Right? Those of you who have taken a little economics, that should remind you of certain graphs you would have seen in economics, because a lot of this stuff is inspired by economics. So a resource has to be scarce and defensible. If it's scarce and you can't defend it, there's no reason to be territorial about that resource. Right? Because you can't defend it. Who, who gives a shit? Like, I mean, these are all mine. I can't do anything about it, though. So <laughs> that, that doesn't get you anywhere. So that, that's all cost, no benefit, right? Okay. Makes sense? Nice examples. What a strange, I don't know what's going on with this. I don't know why that dot is like that. But it is on this, on this slide and maybe the next one, and I find it really weird. Anyway, these are golden winged sun, sun, uh, sunbirds. This is a famous piece of data from Gil and Wolf. Um, the resource here is flowers. Uh, they're, they're nectar feeding birds. Hey, look, that's taken from a book, obviously. So you can see here, we have territory size here. Number of flowers doesn't correlate with territory size. What they're optimizing here is the number of flowers. The size of the territory isn't what they care about, right? They all seem to have roughly the same size. It's, it's a straight line, okay? So the flower number is equal. So it can't be the size 
the territory that matters. It must have, it's probably, if this is constant, you've got to pick yourself, well, that's probably, they probably need somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 flowers on their territory to, I <laughs> haven't, yeah. I had a way of putting it, but it's not a good way to put it, so I'm gonna put it a different way. I'm just trying to think of a way to put it that isn't weird, yet everything that comes into my head is weird. Is weird. That's yeah, the problem. Just go for it. No, I'm not gonna do that. Know. That's what it should be, Dave. You think so? Yeah. I, I, now I can't remember what it was. Uh, no, I'm serious. Uh, oh, I know what it was, I know what it was, I know what it was. To satisfy their needs. Ooh. That's why I thought, that's a little weird, that's all, just a little weird. But it's their flower needs, so I guess it's not weird? I don't know. It sounds empowering. Thank you. It's empowering. That's exactly what I, I am empowering the young people. This is what I do. I empower the young people. Just over here empowering the young people, guys. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you can see what's going on then. It seems like it's, it's, it's about the flowers. I mean, that's a good guess. Anyway, well, what is it? Let's look. So it's not flowers necessarily, it's, it's, it's floral density. A good, because they need the same number of flowers, so what do you want? You want a, a, you want a territory that's, you don't have to do anything, you got all your flowers, right? Okay, so when you take a look at these two graphs, kind of show you this, because now we get this linear relationship, you see? And once you see as one thing goes up, the other one goes up, you can say, okay, that means that's a better quality territory than that one, or a worse quality territory. Flower density, territory size. So you can see that the flower density, right, is probably what they're, what they're defending. So a good territory has lots of flowers in a very small place, which makes sense. So they need flowers to eat because they eat nectar. So a lot of this becomes almost detective work. Eh? So when you do this, a lot of sciences, but what's happening here is you collect these data and you plot them up a bunch of ways and when you find, oh, there's a relationship there, then you go, okay, now I know what their, what, what, what their territory about. Right? Okay. Careful. So let's look at fitness, obviously. So, does territory size affect the quality of mating? These are pronghorns. Pronghorns are kind of ungulate. It's a, where do pronghorns live? I think in, in out west, eh? Like in like Alberta, Montana, you know, over there where they have oil. They're all covered in oil. I'm kidding about that. Don't write that down. University of Lethbridge are called the pronghorns. That's why I've got that in my head. So, look at this guy here, mean doe group size on the territory and the forage quality uh, per meter cubed. Look, if you've got better quality food, drives the babes wild, <laughs> right? Because why are they mating? Well, they're mating to, again, pronghorns aren't mating because it's a good time. They probably aren't. 
don't know what the function of sex is. It's just making more of you, right? So you're going to get as many as five hanging out on one territory when the, when the caloric density is really high. It makes sense to be the number three or four female if the territory is so good that even that's still better than being the number one ter uh, female on a different territory, right? So look at this up here. This is worth it because look at how good that territory is. So again, a lot of times I think, and I think we we can't help this. We have this tendency of throwing human, um, and not just human, uh, 21st century North American mores onto pronghorns, uh, which is probably stupid. Uh, but we do this and we think, well, how could she even, she must feel horrible about this. She doesn't feel horrible. She doesn't feel neglected. She doesn't feel like she's playing second fiddle. She's just got food and a mate. She's very happy. We can't think of these things like they're people. As hard as it is to not think of them that way, you just can't. I think I said earlier in the course, don't try to get inside an animal's head. You don't belong there. You can't. Here we have dixissels, which are birds. Uh, this is, this, I like this one a little bit because, again, number of mates. And this is, uh, what we have here? Yes, vegetation, density on territory. And you've got a line. However, I don't know about you, but I look at that line. I don't see that clear relationship. I'm not saying it's, whoa, that's my analysis. I'm not saying it's not there. Because I'm, I'm assuming that that line represents a regression line. Yeah, Elizabeth. Could you explain the pronghorn relationship again? Yeah, so the higher the caloric density, the more females are available to mate with on that territory. Okay. Yeah. So like they're grouping there because it's better territory? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. As I say here, you know what they say about guys with big, ter with big, big territories. That's what's going on. Like it's not only the bigness here of the territory, it's, it's the amount of grams per meter cubed. Meter cubed, meter squared, sorry. And the males defend that territory that against other exactly males. exactly correct. Okay, so they get more. Yeah. So could you have a smaller territory, but because there's more mm -hmm. packed density in there? In fact, that would be ideal. Okay. Right, because it'd be easier to defend a small territory. Yeah. So if you have a small territory full of food and full of mates, you're golden. And that's, you know, sort of the goal of all, all these animals. Uh, I said, again, goal, they aren't really thinking about it clearly. It just happens. I just, I don't know. I'm sure that's a regression line. I, I just, it doesn't, there's a whole tendency I find generally in ecology, just in general, which is to force fit curves that don't really belong. And I'm not the only person who said that. That's not just me. Oh, my provocative. Yeah. Take a real stand. Uh, no, I'm not the only person to say this. And again, I, I believe that this is a regression line. And I'm certain it is. And I'm sure it's a simple regression. It just seems to me that that looks almost like a random distribution. Or relationship, I'm sorry. And the number of times I remember watch, going to a talk, uh, John Krabs giving a talk when I was at U of T, and he was talking about something, and he said, as you can see, it follows this curve, and like three of us put our hands up, and like two of us were grad students who knew him, but like we're nobodies. It's like, but dude, didn't you just force that on there? But we let it go. Jerry Hogan, I told you about Jerry last week, the guy with the dust bathing, and Jerry just, 
was like, I don't think I could draw a curve there too. You know, which is I thought pretty good. But fine, okay. What if the territory has no resources? What? A territory without resources? Is it still a territory? The cognitive revolution was neither cognitive nor a revolution. Discuss. Um, Leck breeding. Greatest example of this is something called Leck breeding. There's Leck breeding in this part of the world. Uh, moose are Leck breeders. What okay. does that mean? Well, what it means <laughs> is you've got um, lots of, so lot, ungulates do it, a lot of birds do it. So that's things with hoofs. Uh, birds do it. What it is is they just all meet the females and they see the males, the males all hang around one place going right here. Let me get in my way. They sort of jostle for position. A little bit of fighting. Maybe a little bit of fighting. At most, there's going to be some fighting. Right? There's going to be some usually ritualized fighting. With moose, there's a whole thing. They build antlers, they fight with the antlers, they don't actually kill each other, they can do some real damage to each other. But they usually don't fight to the point of, they don't fight to the death. It's not like the Khalifa that happens if uh, on Vulcan. I'm sorry, I got a little Star Trek-y there. That like that behavior that they're taking yeah. part of is called like breeding. Mm -hmm. They are what's called on a lek when the, when the males are joshing, josh, josh, Jaw saline for position. You see, they're on a lek, or they're lek, or, or they're lekking. I've heard that. And the females watch, and they pick. Then the females determine who they're going to mate with. So there's usually a guy. It's usually a central territory. And these territories are small, like they're the size of this room or smaller. Okay. It's not based on nutrient density. It's not based on anything like that at all. That's the wonderful thing about this. It's literally the, it's basically a tradition for a herd of moose. It's like, oh yeah, we, we do it over there. So could you say that it's like random where they choose? Yeah, yeah. It's got to be a big open place where everybody can, where all the females can watch all the exciting male on male action. <laughs> Jesus, things are getting really weird. I'm sorry. Things come out of my mouth and I don't even know what they mean. Story of my life. Okay. It's really strange behavior because it's it's territoriality, but they're defending nothing. They're defending the territory, which is a meaningless thing. It's not meaningless to them. They'll fight hard. But it's one of these things, if you could actually, if they can speak and you said, you know, you're defending a territory that has no value whatsoever, they'd probably look at you like, mind blown. You know, it's like when you realize that a $20 bill is just a piece of polymer. You know, oh, well that's, I guess I'll put it back in my pocket, but that's arbitrary and bizarre. But clearly the behavior has a benefit. Oh, it must, or it wouldn't be around, right? I mean, you, you can go take that too far, and it does too, because the, Yes, the, the, the ones in the central or the best part of the lek end up getting usually many, many, many of the mating opportunities. And the females make the choice. When I say hang out, they are jostling for position, there's fighting, but there's nothing, 
it's, it's extremely ritualized, I'll say that typically. A lot of animal fights are pretty ritualized, like within species. Between species is different, usually that's a matter of life and death and something trying to eat something else, but um, with fighting between individuals of the same species, you get a lot of uh, ritualized fighting. Right, that's good for everybody. Because if I give up, because I mean, I can't beat you, but if I kept fighting, you might think, well, why? what's the advantage of giving up in a ritualized fight? The advantage is if we were really fighting, I'd probably still get beaten, I'd get the shit kicked out of me, but I'd also hurt you. So it's good for everybody if we stop when the winner has been figured out clearly. It's like a mercy rule, uh, right? You get ahead by 10 in your softball game, and the other team goes, okay, well, there's no way we're getting 10 runs in this inning. So we give. So let's think a bit more about Lex. Is it the central territory? It is sometimes. Is it being there at the right time? Yeah, it's that too. So it's temporal as well as spatial. Sometimes there's a display involved. So they're all sitting around and they're displaying. Look at me, hey, he's over here. A lot of these species are territorial as well. So once they breed, they set up a breeding territory. This is a mating territory, then there's a breeding territory, right? Which is more like a traditional territory. Sometimes, and again, this, these things all vary depending on the case you're talking about, but you can, maybe the territory they end up with later on is correlated with how well they do in the lack, and it is sometimes. So, let's take a look. These are again in Cope's. Uh, and they're also ungulates, and you can see what we're measuring here. Uh, this guy got 34 mates. There are eight, 64. He got half of the mating opportunities because he's standing in the middle going, I'm tough. And all the female colds are like, oh, look at him. I will now go present my honey quarters to him. Look what happens. Once you get down to like, look, there's 22 males. But from 12 to 22 is me before I met my wife. Um, I was never successful with women. Mostly because of jokes like that, I think. Um, I'm using jokes in a, in a, in a very broad sense, because that wasn't funny. It's more of a documentary. Um, this is even better. <laughs> this is late period. Um, Mannequin here, this is your birds. Four, this guy got 436 mating opportunities. The next guy, uh, sorry, there are 436 total. He got about 74 mating opportunities, 73. Next guy got 13, that's it. Yeah, good for him, it works out great for him. And perhaps number two there is like his wingman. Probably these three guys hang out. The rest of them, these are me, all my friends back in the day. I might be reading into, into this a little bit more. But <laughs> Probably, but so. Like, you know, say as those higher competing males, maybe yep. they get older, they get eaten and stuff, other males have the opportunity to kind oh, of. Oh, sure. That guy doesn't have that till he dies. Yeah, that's maybe one. Because he can't, you know. Age is probably the, the key factor here, because the older you get, if there is any actual fighting, and with birds it's not as much fighting usually as displaying, you're not going to be as good at it anymore. Yeah. 
you know, um, even Wayne Gretzky slowed down. <laughs> Everybody gets a little not so good at things as they get older, believe me. I used to be a good teacher. <laughs> um, so, Lex are fascinating because of these weird special cases where you're defending a territory that's totally symbolic and arbitrary, yet it correlates with mating opportunities. That's why I, I kind of think of it like money. It's like money's totally arbitrary, except that we use it for our daily lives and it matters, but when you think of it, it's actually completely arbitrary. And I know that sounds like I'm one of those crypto guys, believe me, I'm not. Hey, put all your money into math problems, solved by your car. Right on that there, buddy. Some conclusions. See, I told you we'd get done this pretty quickly, because it's pretty quick. Um, a lot of animals are territorial. And this is almost always about defensible resources, but it isn't always. Sometimes it's about, you know, just, just is. These are, optimality is really easy to do here, um, as you can probably guess. Uh, I just quickly showed that thing with those two curves, but it's easy to get fitness measures here, because we're talking usually about mating opportunities. That's the, the best fitness measure is actually fitness. As long as you know the resource, it's easy to make a model. All right. So yeah, that took like, what, 20 minutes. So now let's talk about what I find more interesting. <laughs> okay. As, as I said, I think I said that in 2606 this morning. It's a good indication. Or was that here? I can't even remember. It all runs together at this point. But it's the case, clearly, that professors talk about what they find interesting. You'll note that I spend a lot more time on this one. Uh, let's talk about navigation. Now we're getting right up my alley. I don't know why I did that. I, I don't, but I thought I tried something just for the hell of it, and it worked, and I'll likely never do it again. Okay, we just talked about territoriality. To get around a territory, you have almost no words going. That sounds like a kind of a gimme, but, you know, I think it makes some sense. So, any animal that moves. There's some animals that don't move very much, they're not gonna probably care too much evolutionarily about spatial memory, right? You gotta know where you've been and where you're going. Right? Well, you have to know where you've been, you might get home. So if you've gone out to go find food, you gotta know how you got there, because if you, I think this has happened to all of us. Anybody do this? You remember you got to about grade eight, you're like your last year at trick or treating, and you decided what I'm going to do this year. Whole city, go to the whole city, go to grade eight, pillowcases, a truck, pull it right up. And then at some point you're walking around going, I don't know where I am. I have walked so far that I'm right by the steel plant. What are they giving it? Girders? Carcinogens. Carcinogens, mostly, yes. Uh, so yeah, you, you know, we've all gotten lost in this kind of thing. So knowing where you've been is actually important. This can be done with complex cognitive mechanisms. This can also be done with odor trails. Like there's really simple ways to, to navigate and really complicated ways. Uh, by the way, odor trails much less common than people think they are. The general public has this notion that all other animals are stupid. Humans are smart and know where they're going. Other animals are going, where have I been? Can I smell my ass over here? Like, I mean, it's, it's really strange. We have this idea that other animals are stupid and we're smart, and it's not 
quite that simple. <laughs> the world isn't that simple. What's that? They don't have satellites. They don't have satellites, they have GPS. No, there's all, we can invent stuff. There's something pretty cool that humans do. Other people, this is what people are. You know, crowds use tools. Yeah. One of these? <laughs> Ever seen a crow design a cell phone? No. <laughs> the crows don't get together and go, what's our new product launch this year? Uh, it's cool that they can use tools. That's very impressive. But it's kind of like when your kid draws a picture. You know, the first time your kid draws a picture, you get home from preschool or something, and it looks like this. And it's got the arms in the head. They're all sticking out of his head. Basically, Picasso. Yeah. So good job. Yeah, and you put that on your fridge. And then you look at it, if you look at it, and you look at it objectively at all, that's garbage. Like, it doesn't look like a person at all. Kids are horrible artists. And then there's the old weird kid. It's all about perspectives. It could be falling down. So much, too much about perspective. Um, did you look at As their arms are sticking out of their heads, yeah, still, you still lose me there. Here's the simplest form beyond odor trails, which are boring, of navigation that uses memory, and that's path integration. This works like this. So what happens is this is an animal going, this is, uh, this is its nest, it's got food. When it goes out, it uses this winding path because it doesn't know where that is yet. But then it goes straight back. And a lot of animals do this. If I say a lot, I mean, what do you say it's called? It's called path integration. Uh, oh, I didn't see that. Because in fact, what's going on here is vector mathematics and calculus. And the animals don't know that. <laughs> they don't know their nervous systems are doing calculus. They don't know their nervous systems are doing vector mathematics, but they are. They have to add vectors. This, by the way, is the long-legged desert ant. They live in Tunisia. So the Tunisian long-legged desert ant, this is a great name, because this, this, that name of that species tells you everything you need to know. Tunisian lives in Tunisia. Long legs, okay, they've got long legs. Desert lives in desert, and it's an ant. All things should be described like that. Dogs should be called short, furry, barky things. At least you know what it is. So, so it's, 20, it's 25 meters, so we're going 50 meters out, maybe 75 meters. It's a good trip for a thing this big. And they gotta go out at night, you know why? Because in the day, they cook. <laughs> they go out in the sun, in the desert, in Tunisia, they literally cook. So they, they, they go out at night to forage. Okay. I always thought ants navigated using like pheromones. Yeah, I know, a lot of people think that. And they just they, I'm not saying they don't use pheromones, because they yeah. don't. Yeah. But, but I thought it was like one ant goes and the next one falls as a trail and all that stuff. Yeah, you can see that a lot of people think that. <laughs> it's a very common thought, especially with insects. Inception, right? Especially with insects. People think yeah. insects are really stupid. Um, they're not. Like, the cognitive complexity of like a bumblebee is unreal. Or a honeybee is better than a bumblebee. Bumblebees are stupid. Male, male bumblebees actually are stupid. You ever into a male bee, it, it can't hurt you because it can't sting. It'll fly right into you. It'll hit you. Flying around going, I'm a sack of sperm. I have no other function. You know, so it's, they're idiots. So, how does this work? Aha! Maybe I'll explain that to you. 
So it has a twisting outgoing path, but a direct path home. So how is this going to work, Elizabeth asks. Well, the animal has to store, I don't know why that's in capitals, the animal stores the direction and distance. Okay, so you can see here, what's it doing? This, this, this uh, picture makes it clear. This is the outbound path, that's the red, and here's the inbound path. It adds all these vectors uh, it adds them, but it changes the direction of them, and it gives it, you know, it points home. It's vector F. It's stuff you did in high school math. Probably. I didn't do that. Okay, you didn't do, you did not do vector math. Who did vector math in high school? A little bit of vector math. A little bit. Does it, else? Does it count if I'm doing it in physics? Then? Yes. Good enough. Yes? Okay, so if you was playing with vectors, vectors are just numbers that have direction. Okay. I mean, they're more than that, but that's for our purposes. It's good enough. So they're just adding vectors. They don't know they're adding vectors. They don't, you don't have the answer going, okay, so uh, 18 degrees, 12 centimeters, right? Like, <laughs> they're not actually doing that. So how? Yeah, keep going, go ahead. Like, if, if they don't know they're doing yeah, it, yeah. And, and they just do it, yeah. it, it's just a behavior that they just... It's a behavior that their nervous system expresses. It, it's, it seems weird that oh, it's they weird. would be able to do it, and it's like I can't wrap my mind around the fact that they can, because yeah. like, logically yeah, they can't. Catch. Go back. Yeah, go back. Okay, our nervous systems had to do a tremendous amount of math to do those things, and it was all calculus. They had to guess, not guess, actually measure in the air the speed, they had to make the deceleration, the rate that it's going towards the ground, you can measure all those things, and uh, also because of P300, figure that out 300 milliseconds before you behave. So I had to figure out, I need to figure out what I did. It. As my arm was moving, you had to guess. Your nervous system figured out, oh, it's going to go like that. See, it's just and you're not aware that you're doing it, but you're doing it. It's crazy to think about that it happens. It's like, it's fucking mind boggling. It it's, it's totally mind boggling. Yeah, freaking neurons, exactly. But this is the thing, and this is what makes this is what makes this amazing. And this is why I still love thinking about this kind of stuff. Uh, about animal navigation, especially, it's something that I love, and I love it because I can I realize the animal's nervous system is doing this calculus. I realize the animal isn't aware of it. But when you actually look at these neural circuits, and more of this work's getting done now. Um, they're doing calculus. Like, it's really freaking neat. It's very cool stuff. So this is really simple vector mathematics. It's vector math if I, that you could figure out in a couple of seconds. Like, it's not hard, but an ant isn't doing that. But it is doing it. It's just not aware it's doing it. Right? But just think about this, all the times you go to do almost anything, say to catch something, that's my favorite thing is catching because there's so many calculations that are going on. Your nervous system is making all kinds of calculations. Thinking of hitting a baseball or, or a, I don't know, a cricket bat, if you're playing trying to go, or tennis, anything where you're hitting something. Think all the math that has to be done there. And it has to be done that quickly. In something that doesn't work that fast. It just sort of fakes that it works that fast. It's really quite cool. So what the animal has to do here is it has to maintain a running calculation. 
and any errors the animal make will be cumulative. So it, the animal's going to make errors because uh, it's not perfect. It's not perfect in calculus, unlike me in high school. Um, okay, I got 99 calculus in grade 15. Oh, wow. Wow, that's really good. It's, uh, calculus, the thing about calculus is there's right and wrong answers. If you had to do it, you're not going to make any mistakes. It's not that impressive. I mean, I'm clearly pretty impressed with myself that I'm talking about my mark in calculus from 1982. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I ran into my calculus teacher, jeez, uh, in, in literally 1999, so it was, it was 17 years later. And we were coming off a train in London, and this guy, he says to me, Dave, I said, Mr. Littell? Because that was, to me, that was his name. And he said, I heard you have a PhD. I said, yeah, I do. I worked at Western. He said, that's really neat. He said, by the way, you can call me Frank, you know. I said, no, I can't. <laughs> I think your name is Mr. Littell, and you don't have to call me Dr. Broadbeck, because that would also be very weird. It's like when my brother was, you know Mr. Dress Up? You know Mr. Dress Up? Yeah. My brother recorded an album for him. My brother's a record engineer and producer, and he was working with Mr. Dressup, and he would talk, you know, they talked to the mic, to the guy in the, in the booth, and he said, uh, he kept, he'd say things like, okay, Mr. Dressup, let's try that again, and he looked at my brother and said, you can call me Ernie, and my brother said, no, I can't, Mr. Dressup. You're Mr. Dressup. And then, like, he swore, which is great, like Mr. Dressup, so that's wonderful. I have a whole theory about Finnegan, of Casey, of, of the Mr. Dress-Up. The, the dog used to be able to talk, but he was counting and banged his head so many times. Anyway, um, Mr. Dress-Up humor. It's very specific. So, the errors they make will be cumulative. What errors, how would you make an error? What are a couple of errors an animal could make? Taking the wrong turn. Be more general. I don't really not say that. <laughs> But be a little more general. Because what calculation member is doing vector math? What's it got to do? What vector vectors have distance and direction. So there's two places you can make mistakes, the direction and the distance. Could be off by a few degrees, could be off by a few centimeters. And the error will accumulate such that if there's a five degree error making on this one and an eight degree error here, we have a 13 degree mistake. So it's going to be cumulative. So how could you improve that? Think of what the animal has around it. Don't, don't, just see if you can figure out. Older would be a possibility, but it's not that. Think of something a little more complicated cognitively. Landmarks? Landmarks. Something like that, maybe? Yeah, well, the next thing says landmarks, so it's probably landmarks. Well, integrating, I have that in quotes because it actually doesn't know it's doing calculus. Um, the animal can take a fix. Now, this is how, how actually, uh, before GPSs, this is how people would navigate in boats. Right? When they'd be sailing, they would use a sextant. You got a, uh, sorry, no, let's back up. You know your, you know your distance because you know how fast you're going. So you can do simple arithmetic to do that. And you know where you started, but you know you will make mistakes because your, your, your measuring of your distance is perfect, right? And your measuring of your 
180 angles is perfect. So you take a fix. You take a fix with a sextant, right? That's how you know Fingen tells you the uh, azimuth and the azimuth and elevation of a star. And then you look it up in a chart, and it says if the star, if the time is this, and the azimuth and the elevation of that star are this, this is exactly where you are on Earth. It's called a, um, an ephemeris table. E P H ephemeris. The only thing it doesn't sound like it. Uh, it's not like it sounds, it's, the, the, it's a pH on F, okay, so ephemeris. So an ephemeris table allows a sailor to, to do this, to, to navigate. They, they, they do most things by what's called dead reckoning, which is the way path integration is done. It's called dead reckoning. But every so often they take a fix. And you take a fix from a star or perhaps the sun, which is also a star anyway. Okay, so that's, so take a fix, of, could be the sky, it could be a landmark nearby, whatever. Stars and the sun, in fact, clock shift experiments with bees show this to be true. So, remember I said you have to know the time. And if you know the time, and you know where a star is, you know where you are on Earth. But what if I took you, what if I somehow had the ability to change the time? If I could turn back time. So that's me doing my share impression. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. So, how are we going to do this? Well, we take some bees. We have a map of Egypt. We train in Egypt. And it's a desert, so it all kind of looks. Here's where the food is. Then you take the bees, you put them in a box, get on a plane, and you fly to Morocco. You're a couple time zones over. You let them out and see the bees. Now, the sun's changed, right? Because you're, you've moved a couple thousand kilometers. And in fact, this is exactly what happens. We now know that bees take fixes from the sun and have a built-in ephemeris table in their, in their one million neuron brains. Yes, um, I was just going to comment on that study that they did. And they kept doing different studies because it seemed they weren't sure if that was why it was happening. Yeah. So they kept changing the condition. And when it happened again, they would change it again and again. And eventually, they just flew somewhere else where there would be Jet, jet lag, essentially. Yeah, you're, in essence, you're kind of giving them jet lag, but you got to go fast enough that you do it in the same day. This is why you go, say, Egypt to Morocco or something. Right? If this, is not, this is a non-trivial experiment. You need a big grant to do this work. I'm going to take some bees, then I'm going to need tickets for each bee for a plane. Then they have to search the bees. Got any weapons? Well, yeah. I have a stinger. <laughs> so, in fact... With a sextant, that's what GPS is what's used today. Of course, we don't typically need uh, to learn how to use those things anymore because we have GPS in our phones. Um, but there was a time pretty recently, because GPS only went into the public in geez, early 2000s. Before that, it was run by the US military. Well, it's still run by the US military, but they've got way, way better ones than we have. There's, there's better gear out there that we don't see. But yeah, so there's these, but up until then, that's how you navigate by sexing, right? Um, but today, you can take a fix with a, with a, with your phone, frankly. I once navigated through the St. Mary's River in complete pitch darkness with Pedro Antunes on a boat. That's, oh, poorly. Um, <laughs> We went to go watch the fireworks on Canada Day. 
and it was raining, but it's like, hey, we'll go in the boat, we'll go right beside him and do it, it'll be fun. So we're sitting there, and he's got a nice sailboat, and we sat there, a couple of beers, it's nice. We were there, so our wife's there, it was a very nice night, and it's like, well, we gotta go home. And it's like, it's completely black, and there's no stars. How are we going? I thought to myself, well, we're going to die. We're going to die, and I can see my house, but we're going to die. And like, we're going along, and Paula, Pedro's wife, was at the front of the boat, looking down like this, going, no, go left, <laughs> to see if there's any rocks. We, we, where, I'm still here. It's a fun night, but at the time, it was terrifying. Um, I didn't act like I was terrified, but I was really frightened that I was leaving two children at home to fend for themselves. You know, stellar positions change over time. Like over, the, the stars are in a completely different place than they were a couple thousand years ago. So that means those Tunisian ants, they learn where those stars are. Because <laughs> they couldn't, it couldn't be hard work. So they have to actually literally learn, and you know, ant lifetimes aren't long. So in those lifetimes, they have to actually learn where the stars are. Yeah, they only have to learn a couple of stars, but still, it's pretty impressive. It's literally exactly what I'm saying. Yes, that is so whack. <laughs> it's pretty great, right? Yeah, yeah. I got a buddy, a couple of buddies, and if you can call women buddies, which I think you can, I got at least three buddies who uh, study ant and bee navigation, and they often go to places like Tunisia or the outback of Australia. Four. One's an Algoma grad. Yep. Um, so, are the stars the landmarks then? No. In okay. this case, the stars aren't landmarks. Landmarks would be something like a tree okay. beside or near something. We'll get into that in a sec. So no, those are not landmarks yet. Those are just stars you're taking a fix from. Okay, so you're just kind of telling where you are in space. Where you are in space, but yeah, if, if and again, with an ephemeris table with a sextant, you can actually know exactly where you are on the face of the earth. And that's kind of what the, okay. these ants are doing. The difference is, of course, if you took ants that are from Tunisia and brought them here, they'd be screwed at night. Screw's the wrong way to put it. They would make more mistakes because they still have path integration by a dead reckoning to get home. But they wouldn't be able to, be able to take a fix that often, which is something they can do. And they, how do you think they know how, how far they've moved? What are some guesses? Because they have to know how far they've gone to know to do dead reckoning, to do path integration by dead reckoning. So how could an ant know how far it's gone? As in how far it has walked? Yeah. How many of itself? <laughs> what would the mechanism be to do that? Oh. Is it like something with like time? Time would matter, yeah. Like it can yeah. sense how much time has passed? Sure. Any animal can do that, yeah. It says for time. But what would they do with time? There's a couple of there's a couple of ways they can do it, and that they do do it. Compare it to how fast they walk. And yeah, how do they know how fast they're walking? Maybe they just know. Count how many steps. Oh, that seems too. Count how many steps divided by the amount of time that gives you speed. The other thing you can do. So they do that. The other thing they do is now is it super accurate? Like, you know, I don't know that ants can differentiate between ten and eleven. I, I just don't. I don't know the answer to that. I know people I can ask. Curious if I have any other phone numbers that I can text them right now and find them. No, I don't know anybody yet. I don't have anybody's phone number. Um, what 
they can do is that. The other thing they can do is a, how quickly the panorama moves. So how much, when I walk like this, I know how far away the wall is, I see how quickly it moves, and I can therefore get an estimate of how quickly I'm moving. And the way that you do that kind of work is you take, you set the, the ants up in a, like a, a circular arena like that. So here's your little ant in here. Wait, there's antennas on there, there we go. I, I worked way too long in the end. But these are like little walls, eh? And they go up about maybe 30, 40 centimeters, and you just project stuff on the walls. <laughs> you have it move, and you change how the projection, the projection moves. And uh, it changes how, how much time they think, is, uh, how, how much space they think they've moved through. So if it's like, if you move it faster, they think they're going faster? Mm -hmm. That's so cool. It's a bit wild. Uh, that's work by, I'm just going to list people's names, the buddies I listed, so I, I don't know of an actual given paper, but that's Chang, Leg, uh, who else does that kind of stretch? How do we know that they are perceiving themselves as moving faster? Because you can then see how they navigate back, and you can see the mistake they make, and the mistake they make is they've gone 26 meters and actually only gone 21 meters. That's so cool. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, you can because you change the speed of it, it changes how much they think they've gone. Like it's wide. Yeah. Uh, who else is one of the person I was thinking of? So Ken. Oh. Uh, so it's Ken Chang, Eric Legg, Marcy Spatch, Jenna Condon. Both of them did their undergrad thesis with me, him in Newfoundland, her here. Uh, he's famous and she's famous. I mean, in what I do. It's not like they get mobbed walking down the street. <laughs> Doesn't have too much. Okay, let's change. Now, that was stuff in the sky. Let's get to beacons and landmarks. A beacon directs behavior towards it. So if I want to walk towards the garbage can, I walk towards the garbage can. It's a beacon. It's, it's, a, it's in essence, uh, it is the goal and it's also something that pulls behavior towards it, directs behavior. A landmark points to the goal along with other cues. So again, for the, well, let's use the doorway as a way out, as, as, a, as my goal. I know the distance and direction of the garbage can to the doorway. Again, distance and direction, that's a, that's a vector. Uh, so if I know that distance and direction, I go, oh, that's about a meter, about two meters from the door. And the angle is about 290 degrees. So I know that I would walk here. Okay. And both of these things are used by a lot of animals. So there's been a lot of stuff in the last 20 or 30 years about landmark use. It's, it's the, the landmark stuff is actually pioneered by, by Ken Chang. Um, well, you'll see Ken in just a second here. So let's talk about some bees. Bees are awesome, and uh, let's talk about how they navigate. So what do we have here? I've got a situation set up in training. These, these are training. There's, there's going to be a box in this room, and it might be a room like this, a very common room like this. 
and you let it be in here, and you have a little box, nothing else, just a little box, and then beside it over, or in this case, I guess, below it, so if you get the box, if the box is like here, then maybe here on the floor, we have a bowl of corn syrup, you know, really heavily concentrated sugar water. Bees find that delicious, you find it delicious, let's face facts. So you train them up with that. Now you can do something cool here, what you do, make, let the bee in, let's make the, the, the box of half its size. And we're not gonna put the bowl out anymore, we're just gonna look with a search. Watch the bee, bee flies in, he, uh, she, I'm sorry, searches twice as close when it's half his size. When you make it twice the size, they search twice as far away. Whoops. So what the bee is doing then is matching the retinal size of the image it sees with the size of the image it has in memory. Right? Because it's like, okay, it's got to be, oh, that's the right size. So it must be right there. Okay? I'm confused. What's confusing? I, 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 I'm having a hard time understanding the size to the memory. Okay. That's right. So the bee is taught, just on the training part here, that here's a, some, some sugar water, and here's a box. And the box whatever this is, let's say that's 50 centimeters from there. Now we're gonna make the box half its normal size. Now the, to make that retinal size seem the same as the size that it's learned, that it has in memory, it has to get twice as close. So that's 25 centimeters. It's, it's using like the distance to match what it's been learned to do. Mm -hmm. Okay. Exactly. Uh, gotcha. it's, it's, the reason this sometimes seems complicated is it's actually because it's so simple. It's surprisingly simple. Uh, Ken Chang often says that bees see in two and a half D. They don't quite see in three D. They're not quite apprehending distance, but they're, they're doing it in a roundabout way by looking at retinal size and matching it up. So here, this is telling us that make it twice as big, they search twice as far away. So what is the box? It's just a landmark. Okay. It could be, it, it's, a, it's a cardboard box. Okay. It's literally a cardboard box. And this is literally a little bowl full of concentrated sugar water. So when the box is smaller, they search closer, closer to the box? Yeah, because look, uh, let's use something. I've got to find two things. Oh, that's good. Okay. How is that useful for them in like the Wild. So they know when they have to go back to their home, when they have to go back to where they got food. They oh, to, yeah. there's a patch of flowers this far from that Thank tree. You. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So this is the, so here's the, uh, so this, my iPad here, and so there's my cup, my cup would be the goal. Okay? I learn eventually, oh, I like sugar, and I look around, because I'm a bee, so I look around, there's the thing. It's gotta be that big. Okay, good. Now, instead, Dave the Evil Experimenter has changed everything, and now instead of there being an iPad there, there's a phone. It's gotta be this big in my eye, because that's how big I saw it. So now I'm gonna search here, because it now matches the right size. Okay. Make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Okay? 
So what, it's, what the bee is doing is it's actually matching the retinal size of what it's seeing to what it's remembered. So is the circle where they're searching, or is that yeah. the bowl? Yeah. They're searching. There's no bowl here. There's okay. no bowl here. Okay, cool. I get it. Yeah. They're, they're just videotaped, uh, and you pay an undergraduate to count where they are every second. <laughs> Or now you do it a computer, you can buy software that just does it. We used, what we used to do, it would always be people in like Ken's lab. Ken was on my PhD committee, and um, he was a prophet of at the time. And Ken would always have like these first year students who wanted research experience. And the research experience was, there's a videotape machine, advance it one frame at a time, and then just put a little mark on the, on the screen with the acetate over it with a marker where the beads. Hell of a job. What? I'm not going to leave this and quit show business? Yeah, so, you know that joke, right? The guy complains that he, his job at the circus is cleaning up elephant shit, and someone says, You like that job? He says, Well, I'm not going to quit. I'm going to quit. Leave show business? It's <laughs> <laughs> the same kind of thing, right? This is science. So, if you change the color, it doesn't matter. Turn this from blue to purple, and bees see in color. In fact, they see more colors than we do. Um, if you make it wireframe, so you just take a, you make, instead of the box being a solid box, you just make a box out of uh, coat hangers. Works fine. They're, so what does that tell us? That tells us they're paying attention to edges. And just edges, nothing else. So what do we do? Two landmarks. So there's your training situation. So it's like that. And then we rotate them and they search here. Okay, that's, that's good. That, that's showing that they're actually not paying attention to the, the geometry of the whole room, just the one part where the, where the two landmarks are. So what you could do next is called a stretch test. This is where it gets weird because they have three places they search. The peak place of searching is just here, which is the same angle as that, just here, angle distance as that, and here, which is the same, it's between the two, but the and the distance is right, but the angle should be here. So it's not, with when you two landmarks, it's not just the size. They're, they're, they're encoding something else. So it's distance and direction. They're sort of half using the angular information. They're not only using it. The angular means the angle from the landmarks. And that's the 2.5D? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, because it's not really 3D. Interesting. Yeah. So it's 3D places to search. Uh, this is, call it curvature. Uh, I think that's the reference on that. Yeah. This is neat work. The B stuffs, these are so cool. I mean, I wouldn't work with them because they frighten me. Social insects can hurt you when they're organized, and I, it's a bad combination. Oh, let's change the pigeons. Okay, this is Ken Chang. Hey, there's Ken now. That's Ken looking at, well, always some bees. I don't know what he's doing there. So this is work that Ken did quite a while back, but it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a landmark paper. <laughs> And what happens here is he had a, a big arena, he called it with basically um, a couple of meters by a couple of meters, and about 
maybe 50 centimeters high on the side made of cardboard, and it was all covered in styles. And then he had on the wall uh, a blue stripe. Sorry, it's a white stripe, actually. Uh, and then there was a gold, and that was, it was all evenly covered, but buried underneath there was some grain. These are pigeons. Now, pigeons, when you let them loose somewhere and they're hungry, they'll just start pecking the ground, and eventually they learn where this is. So you know what Ken's going to do here is he's going to do some stuff by, well, the landmark was, he's going to pull it over here, see what happens. And what happens is the animal searches along here, but it doesn't just have one peak place. It's pulled it along there, okay, along that axis. From where it was. Yeah, to where it is now. Yeah. So the animal searches along the same axis as the landmark show. It doesn't only follow that landmark. That's telling you it's following other things in the arena. The corners probably. I would imagine the corners of the box really matter. It doesn't shift in the other direction at all, though, right? So the landmark shift matters, and it's, it's noticed. The pigeons notice this. So what if we take the landmark and take it off the wall and put it in the middle of the room? Uh, the arena, it's not. The pigeon shifts its where, where it searches, on in that axis, the up, what Ken calls the up-down axis. They're, they're actually, if the pigeon isn't flying, it's walking around. But it's up-down on the page. This way, back and forth, you might say. Commanders left and right. Okay. So if the ship's up down, the animal shifts up there. So, Shane concluded that the pigeons must be adding self to goal and goal to landmark vectors together to know where to search. Oh, by the way, the, the, the bird is brought into a random place, started in a random place in the arena every day. So a random number generator was divided up into, I think, I think some did, yeah, divided up into like um, squares, and it was like, say, A7. It's like, okay, we're starting here. So it wasn't like you could learn always walking the same distance and direction. So they must be doing this. And that's actually the only model that explains these search patterns. It's the only way that this can work. There's a problem, unfortunately, that when he tried shifting diagonally, everything fell apart. So the, what, he, what Ken calls the principal axes of the space, because he had a rectangular or square arena, he figures they then paid a lot of attention to those edges as well. Uh, I literally was there when he came up with this. I was, in, I was your guy's age. I was in fourth year. Uh, I was working on my honors thesis in a lab next door. We were the only people on the seventh floor of the social science building at Western on a Sunday afternoon. I was running my rats, smoking cigarettes, because it was 1987. You could smoke anywhere you wanted back then. I had an office as an undergrad. The greatest thing about working with animals is like, yeah, you can, you can set up there. Everybody else didn't have an office with an ashtray in it. That was fine. I was told, just don't smoke around the rats. Time. Uh, it was a Sunday afternoon, and I was, um, I, I, I was writing something. And I hear 
at the top of my, at the top of his lungs, I hear this guy yell out, Eureka! Because that's Ken, is the kind of guy that yells Eureka. And I, I, I don't know, what's going on? He goes, I have, I've solved it! And I'm like, okay. And he explained this to me, and I had no idea what he was talking about. I knew what his experiment was about, but I didn't understand what he was saying at all, because he just confused me. And it wasn't on him, that was because I was kind of dumb. Um, anyway, it was kind of cool. It's kind of a neat thing that, you know, when you're there, when someone comes up with a really important thing for a paper, and it's a pretty important paper too. For people in animal cognition, you just say, vector some model of pigeon landmark, you just think, oh yeah, Ken, Ken Chen, right? Like, everybody knows that. So, what happened when it was diagonal? Where'd they go? Oh, uh, it, it was just un inexplicable. <laughs> they, they went all over the place, it didn't work. Is it like the square was the it was square, but then he would move the, the O and an O on yeah, yeah, that plane. Now, one thing that he did do once was a circular arena. Oh, boy. Do I want to talk about that, or is there way too much math? There's way too much math, I'm not going to tell you that. Sounds good. Yeah, you go look that up if you want. Uh, yeah, let's look that up. <laughs> we'll do the old, you guys can look that one up yourself. All right. Animals use a lot of sources of information to navigate. Obviously. And multiple sources usually point to the same place. The way we get at this is by doing these gene association experiments. So when we move one of the landmarks, move another one of the landmarks, we then can say, oh, what do they do when things are moved? These are probably what are called what, I, what are hierarchical representations, and um, this is actually an idea. This is the first person who ever mentioned this in print is standing in this room, and I don't think it is any of you. Uh, so, unless maybe some of you did, no? Okay. So the notion I have here, and that has been pretty well accepted. I mean, I'm not. Yeah, I thought of this. Uh, is that there are different levels, hierarchies, right? So all kinds that they pay more or less attention to. So do pigeons pay attention to color? Yeah, sure. Do bees pay attention? Can bees learn about color? Yes. There's all kinds of experiments where bees learn about color. But when they're navigating, it's not very important. Is the fact that it's a box probably matter? Yeah, it probably matters. But you know what's really important? The edges. So the other information is important but it can be overshadowed by the information above it in the hierarchy. And usually the thing at the top of any hierarchy of spatial memory is absolute position in three-dimensional space, which can be figured out by landmarks and beacons and maybe with other stuff. But that's the, usually the most important thing. It's the most reliable thing. All right, we got through that one too. Any questions on landmark use? Look at that. We've got two done today. Awesome. Thank you, everybody. And I will see you all in the future.
evolution of path integration, or is that too broad? Uh, yeah, that's pretty broad because there's so many different... You can do stuff with both uh, the yeah. evolution of it would be hard. If you can find stuff, that'd be great. I was thinking, like, using the stars to navigate is really interesting, but I don't know if that would be enough to write a paper on it and do a presentation. So thanks for listening uh, to the lecture. Uh, I hope you got something out of it, as I noted in the intro. Um, these are copyrighted, uh, share like 3.0 Canada, uh, some rights reserved. So you can redistribute this all you want. But if you redistribute it, uh, you can't make any money off of it. Uh, and also, uh, if you mash it up, I get to mash up your stuff. Uh, most of the mu the vast majority of the music I found was on an old website called GarageBand, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and then it was called PodSafe Music. So this is all music that I have, uh, that it's perfectly reasonable to uh, put on these podcasts. Uh, if you are interested, I can oftentimes find the, the name of the band. The name of the band will be listed in the post. And uh, go look these bands up and, and buy their music, because... Um, if they're cool enough to let me use this, you should be cool enough to pay 99 cents or whatever to buy one of their songs. Uh, on that note, I will see you next time. <laughs>